Hey, welcome to Sunridge. If you're a guest with us today, we're so glad that you would take a portion of your weekend to be with us. If you're a regular and you call this place home, thank you for coming back. My name is Jed. It is an honor and a privilege to get to serve as one of our pastors on staff. And we are continuing this Sunday morning a series entitled Devoted. In week one, Britt, our lead pastor, talked about how God always has been and always will be wholeheartedly devoted to you as an individual. And then week two, he piggybacked off of that, and we talked about how this love that God has for us, this reconciliation, this redemption, the gospel message, the good news ought not just stay with us as individuals, but it ought to compel and inspire and push us to bring that to those around us. And this morning, we're going to talk about this right here, how God calls us to one another. Before we get there, let me give you the working definition in the form of a word formula that we have given you every week for what devoted means. Here is our definition for devotion. Devotion equals heart plus commitment. In other words, it's not just our feelings, but it's a synthesis of what we feel combined with consistent action that other people can see. And so that is how we've described devotion. If you have your Bibles, you can turn them to Romans chapter 12. That is where we're going to begin. It's also going to be up there on the screens. Before I read one little verse from this section, let me explain a little bit about how we get there. This big letter that we have written to the Christians in Rome was authored by the Apostle Paul, an itinerant preacher and pastor, a missionary. And this writing that we have was written after 20 plus years of him being a Christian. If you go back into his life, you would remember that he wasn't always a Christian. He was a faithful adherent to the Jewish faith. And in fact, it was his goal to exterminate this burgeoning movement of Jesus followers because in his mind, it was counter to what was the truth. And so Paul, this young man, was going out to persecute Christians, to kill them. And in his effort to exterminate the other, he discovered in fact, the truth. And so for the first several years of Paul's life, and then the 20 years that get us to this place, this person that we now revere and we see as this beloved man, he was actually attempting to convince the world around him that he wasn't a farce, that he wasn't against, but actually he was on the side of the ones that he was initially trying to take out. And if you can imagine trying to convince people that you were trying to kill, that you are on their team, that's pretty difficult. And not just that, the Apostle Paul has to deal with people who misunderstand his theology. And that's what we have in Romans. We have this amazing theological treatise of the Apostle Paul as he attempts to make sense for people on both ends of the religious spectrum who do not understand what he believes and how, some way, somehow, he can see a God, the God, being for not just his people, the Israelites, the Jews, but actually for the whole world. So just remember, 
that that's the undercurrent of this letter and the entire New Testament. People who previously did not spend time together, people who did not take relational time with one another, suddenly being called by God to be the vehicles through which he is going to transform and redeem the world. And it's in that that we have Romans chapter 12, where Paul writes this to the Christians in Rome. He says this in verse 10 in the NIV. It says, Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. We'll get to the NRSV, which is the translation that I tend to read out of. Be devoted to one another. Now, there's something that we can't see here in the English that's incredibly profound. You see, for the only time, the first time and the only time in Paul's entire corpus of letters, he chooses a word that we now have here as devoted, and he only uses it one time. And that word is philostergos. And you'll see it up on the screens. It's a combination of these two words, phileo, which refers to a love that's amongst friends, a brotherly love, and then storge, which refers to a type of love that's more natural and affectionate love amongst family members. And the way that we can describe this word is an inspiring love, typically used to describe reciprocal affection amongst members of a family. And it's interesting to note that this isn't just the one time that Paul uses this word. It's actually the only time that this word appears in your whole New Testament. The one time the Holy Spirit inspires this word. And so it's fascinating to me. And when we look at extra biblical sources about how this word was used in the ancient world, we find that it wasn't just used to describe parents and their love for kids or spouses and their loves for one another. It's used to articulate love that is seen in unexpected relationships, like a slave owner being somehow dedicated to the freedom of his slaves or a leader in a community who is more for the people than it would be expected. And so when the Apostle Paul uses this word to tell this Christian community how they ought to love one another, right out of the gate we see that he is calling for a type of love that is going to be seen as virtuous and inspiring and unexpected. That's the type of love that Paul is attempting to communicate about. So let me pause there for a moment and talk about what we're going to do today. Today, we're going to talk about your dysfunctional family. You guys okay with that? <laughs> Some of you are like laughing nervously. I don't want to go there. And so in order to do that, I thought it'd be appropriate to inject some humor into this moment. And I'm not the funniest person, so I, uh, I consulted with Google. And, and I attempted to find inspiring or humorous quotes about family, but I landed on this webpage that was supposed to have a bunch of memes, you know, the pictures with funny captions, and I didn't even get down to scrolling through the pictures because I thought this introductory paragraph was so incredibly terrible that it was funny enough for me. So let me show you a paragraph where the author was attempting to so honestly articulate what a family is and why families are so great. Here it is. There's nothing better than being with your family. They make you happy, secure, and comfortable. Unfortunately, however, not all members of the family act the same. Some are weird, while others are indifferent. Some are really nice, while there are others who can be rude. That difference in characters makes families even great. And that's exactly what today's collection captured. 
You guys don't get the humor. That's like the worst. I don't know what kind of family you grew up in, and I love my family, but it was not like that. I mean, that part of them, they make you happy and safe and secure. That's the hope. But, man, I have a lot of insecurities, and I'm sure that you do, too. I don't know who penned that thing or typed it up. That's what's wrong with the Internet. Anyone can get on there. That must have been Barney the Dinosaur or something because it's just not realistic, is it? I mean, you can have a deep appreciation for your family, but admit that it's probably messed up. And so I left the Internet, and I went home. And uh, when I went home, I found this thing on my wall. And if you gifted this to me, it it hangs up on our wall. So don't worry. I appreciate in that sense. But I'd never really read it. Uh, These are one of those (laughs) articles. Come on. You've got to be honest at church. All right. Our family rules sign. You guys have one of these hanging up? We can thank the hipsters for giving us signs that have no substance but look artistic. That's what this thing is. Okay, so in first service, I actually started reading this for the first time live. I'm telling you, I hadn't actually read through it before. It hangs in the middle of a collage of some of our kids. Only two of our kids are up on that wall, so the third one, he's still, he's still missing. So that just shows you how families are messed up, right? Okay, someday Trude will get his picture up there, I promise, when he's like 12 or something. <laughs> and he's like, why am I not on that wall? Well, it's because you're the third kid. So I was reading this during first service, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, there are tons of things here we don't do. Eat your peas? I mean, no. Uh, Say please and thank you. We try, right? And so I'm scanning this during first service, and then my eyes hit. You can't see it, but it says never give up. And in the moment, I just remember this funny time with our oldest kid. He was temper tantruming. And just a few days before, I taught him that it's important to not give up. You know, I was talking to him about basketball and just really having that commitment to the game. And so in the middle of his temper tantrum, he's freaking out. And I'm like, bud, please, you, you've got to calm down. I, I was saying it that nicely, right? And, uh, and he said, I will never give up. I'm like, no. Oh, man, if I didn't known that was on that sign, I'd have taken that sign down and thrown it to the floor. I mean, ah. Oh. So... Here's the deal. If I were to be honest and I could create a sign for families, this is what my sign would say. It would say, our family rules. Read this to counteract how you actually feel. It's a play on words. In other words, when you're struggling with your family or your memories of family, you can look at this sign on the wall and it can just remind you that even when things are really difficult, you know, families are okay. So now that you think that uh, I hate my family, in my upbringing, I want to shift gears a little. That's not the case at all. Again, I'm really appreciative of my upbringing, but there's something that we ought to acknowledge. Every single one of us, we come from familial backgrounds with varying degrees of dysfunction. And because we come from backgrounds with dysfunction, we bring that dysfunction here. And so a few minutes ago, when I said that we're going to talk about your dysfunctional family Today, we're not going to necessarily talk about your familial history, even though we will touch on it. I'm talking about this right here. You see, one of the ways that the body of believers or the church is described in Scripture is as the family of God. And there are a lot of people that you don't know in 
this room, but God has done something miraculous in adopting all of us into this family. If we confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, He gives us the right, He gives us the power to become this smorgasbord family of oddity. And, and we could talk about being devoted to one another in like a sappy way, but the hope this morning is we can approach it honestly and authentically. So that's what I would like to do today. So here, here's the deal. I just gave you the reality, right? What is? I want to talk about the opportunity that exists when we affirm that fact, that we all come from broken places in some form or fashion. I don't know what that was for you. I don't know if on one end of the spectrum it was just those family meals around the holidays with your crazy Uncle Jeffrey and his third wife or grandma hiding out in the corner drinking a shot of Fireball. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if on the more serious side of things there was abuse in your home or neglect, name-calling, a lack of communication. I don't know if you have this picture of your parents' marriage that's, that's really perfect. They never argued in front of you. Did you know that the inability of parents to have healthy conflict in front of their kids can contribute to dysfunction in our lives later on? Because we think that arguments and conflict are something that ought not exist in real relationships. That contributes to our dysfunction as well. Maybe you grew up in a home with one parent. Or maybe you went back and forth between different addresses because of parents who had split. Maybe you went from place to place before a family decided to foster or adopt you into their space. Again, I don't know what your story is, but you've got one. And you bring that here to this place. And this isn't just a place where we can sing kumbaya and pretend that everything's okay and get inspired, get our spiritual dopamine, and then leave. There's something more real that God is inviting you and I to participate in, and that's what we want to talk about. So here's the first opportunity that we get when we acknowledge that. We can learn to admit and embrace that this is going to be incredibly difficult and yet so worthwhile. In other words, what God is wanting to do and what he's wanting to cultivate and shape in us, how he's wanting to transform us so that the world would experience his grace and his love, it's only going to happen if we admit what's so messed up about us. You know, I forgot to note that in Romans 12, when Paul's writing this section and, and what we read from, it's, it's this bit where he talks about basically this is how the world will know that you are really Christ followers. A few verses before that, we have the beginning of Romans chapter 12 where he talks about how we're not to be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but to be what? Transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so we have neuroscience right here in Romans chapter 12. There's this idea in neuroscience, the scientific reality of neuroplasticity. In other words, the brain is malleable. It doesn't just blob itself and stay that way. We as human beings can grow. Things can change up there. And God wants to, in many ways, change and transform how we look at this family right here. So here is the personal opportunity that we get from embracing the difficult stuff. The first piece is that when Jesus calls you to follow 
him. And when he promises to sanctify and change you, deliver you, it allows you to acknowledge the fact that at a certain point in time, the stuff that you've been trying to outrun, the familial dysfunction or your sin and how you've contributed to what's messed up in the world, all of those things will find themselves in the person who's brushing their teeth and looking back at you in the mirror. You can't outrun yourself. You're right there. And so part of our role as people who are following Jesus is to accept the fact that he lets us see more clearly what's so messed up about us. And the amazing part about that is it doesn't change his love for us. In fact, it inspired him to go after you and me. So when we think about dysfunction in the family, when you come to this place, don't just start projecting and thinking that everyone around you is screwed up. Be okay with the fact that there's stuff in your life that's going to need to change and that God wants to redeem. You know, Jesus in, in John chapter 8, he says that those who continue in my word are my true disciples. They will know the truth and the truth will what? Set them free. See, that relationship of Jesus freeing us and us choosing that freedom is a partnership. When you look at your life, I hope that you can acknowledge that you're not, you and I, we're not just victims of trauma. We're not just victims of dysfunction, but we contribute to that in some form or fashion in many ways. And so the issues, the problems, whether it's alcoholism or an addiction to prescription pills or pornography, whether it's anger outbursts or I, I don't know what your manifestation is, but I, I'm, I'm having you consider that even, those are pro, even though those are problems, those are the ways that we've attempted to solve the real problems that are underneath. And part of the opportunity that exists in a family where we can be honest is instead of just seeing the outburst or the problems of what's wrong, the apathy or the laziness or thinking that people just can't change and get their stuff together, we see human beings as human beings who really have real hurt and brokenness that is enslaving us to continue to propagate and perpetuate and do the things that we don't want to do. If you want to hear Paul talk about that, read Romans chapter 7. So that's the personal piece. You guys cool with that? Here's, here's the communal piece for us. Allowing us to see each other this way is the will of God. It's, it's what Jesus calls us to do and to see. It's, it's the life he invites us to follow him in. I get that idea from Matthew chapter 12. It it's about to conclude what we know as a narrative discourse of Jesus. And so prior to that, you have a teaching discourse. It's, it's known as the Sermon on the Mount, right? Matthew 5 through 7, where Jesus teaches about what it means to be a true disciple. And then he wraps up by saying that those who hear these words and do them are like a wise man who built his house upon a rock. And then in the next several chapters in Matthew, what you see Jesus doing in his living and bringing along the disciples, essentially testing whether or not they're paying attention on the Sermon on the Mount. Does that make sense? And what happens over those chapters is Jesus takes them to the most dysfunctional places. 
He takes them to see brokenness and sickness and mental illness and spiritual possession, all this stuff that you would want to run from, but Jesus doesn't shy away from it. So much so that his blood family starts to get concerned. Other people are getting concerned about if he's mental himself. And in Matthew chapter 12, verse 46, it says, While he was still speaking to the crowds, his mother and his brothers were standing outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. But to the one who told them this, Jesus replied, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my, bro- my brother and sister and mother. And then it wraps up that narrative discourse, and Jesus begins a discourse where he teaches with parables. I'm so glad that Jesus concludes what we have here by essentially saying, Look back at who I was just with. You want to see the will of God? Then don't want to run away from brokenness. You want to see the will of God? You want to see the heart of the Father? Then don't neglect that there are children who are in need of love. And you're a part of that. So here is the second opportunity that you and I have in this family. We can learn to speak and share and experience grace in the face of disappointment. Whenever you come here, You have expectations. You have hopes. You have desires. And if you go so far as actually engaging in relationship with other people in this family of God, you will find that you will get disappointed. It's going to happen. I remember as a kid uh, singing that hymn, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. You remember that? I've been watching the fountain, cleansed by his blood, joint heirs of Jesus. We travel this sod. That's interesting. <laughs> For I'm part of the family, the family of God. And, and I remember looking around at, at the people in the, in the pews at my church going, no one looks happy. Like, no one looks like they're glad. And then there was that other song, uh, we are one in the spirit, we are one. You remember that? And it's like, man, I just think that song's written all in the minor key. There's nothing happy about that. It's like subconsciously, whoever wrote it probably didn't really appreciate the Christians that he or she was in fellowship with. It's, it's tough. We will disappoint each other. And what are we supposed to do? Pretend when we get here that, that we'll just sing these songs, you know, we'll worship God. And then when stuff gets hard and when people disagree with us or when people hurt us, we decide, you know what, I'll just go to the next church and sing those songs with other people. And then when I get hurt there, I'll pick it up and go to the next. Man, the best time to be a follower of Jesus is when times are terrible relationally. Because he, he calls us and challenges us to look at ourselves in a way that doesn't just do the easy thing. We're called and we're challenged to turn it over inside and ask, how does the grace of God for me translate to a grace and forgiveness and love for the person who's hurt me in this family? Unlike my family was blood, I, I don't just get to geographically separate 
myself. I show up on a Sunday and the person who hurt me sits in the same worship center and we sing the songs as God who's supposed to be strong enough to help us forgive one another. Guys, there's grace to be experienced. I love Ephesians when Paul writes to the churches in Ephesus. And, and by the way, so many of the letters of Paul, I think it was in that first uh, section that I had there. It said like First and Second Corinthians and Galatians. The reason why I noted those, those letters of Paul is because it testifies to the fact that the early church was incredibly dysfunctional. It, that's why I put that stuff there. And in a few weeks when I talk about being devoted to Scripture, I'm going to go back to some of those letters. So that, that, that's there. Uh, anyways, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, again, acknowledging what's so dysfunctional, Paul writes, Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with which you are marked with a seal for the day of redemption. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander, together with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and live in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I probably end up saying every single time we teach, if it states something in Scripture, it assumes the opposite's at hand. So the fact that Paul has to list all of these terrible relational words, it assumes that stuff is in that community. And over 2,000 years later, it's still here today. You know, I, I just had a thought as I was reading that, and I heard that sweet cry of that baby. And I don't know where that child went, but man, it's crazy to me. I hear that sound and I think, oh my gosh, that I, lo I love the sound of, of that. It just strikes me that we all begin that way so small and it just we don't realize what's coming. Yeah, that was the thought that came to my mind. So God bless uh, those that take care of little kids. Anyways. Here is the last opportunity for us, in this message at least. We can help others see that we're learning how to be a more functional family, especially since we're expecting to grow. You know, it pains me when I think about the church today. It just pains me because, and, and how the world sees us, because God, God decided in his sovereignty, in his control, that he would release control and give give this mission over to make disciples and change and transform the world to messed up imperfect people. And, and that's a beautiful thing, but what's so tough about that is the world around us has interpreted, I think, there are almost like two, two ways that we're seeing. On the one hand, we project that we're all perfect and we're, we're holy and we have all the answers, and then there's just so much hypocrisy with that, right? Because it doesn't take long for people to realize that you can call yourself a Christian, name the name of Christ, and it doesn't mean that, you know, you're the most incredible, gentle, amazing person. It, so it doesn't take long for that to fall apart. But then on the other end of the spectrum, so not denying dysfunction, but showing just how dysfunctional we are. I mean, it, it's incredible how we continue to treat each other in a manner that 
seems to miss that Jesus says they'll know you by your love. I was reminded of that earlier this week. I, I heard about this book from a few staff members a couple months ago by this woman named Rachel Hollins. And she wrote this book called Girl, Wash Your Face. And I'm not here to espouse or, or affirm that book in any way, but I started reading about this book because I'd heard that there were some concerns in the church about the type of message that might be given as a Christian who then seems to make it seem like God isn't so much a part of it and, and all that stuff, whatever. I go on Amazon, though, and I decide I'm going to check out some reviews for this book, and it just hurt me to read the stuff that Christians were, were tossing out there. I mean, it didn't take more than a few sentences than for Christians who were talking about Jesus to start slamming this Rachel Hans because they're, she's entitled. She doesn't, you know, she doesn't understand life. Her life isn't that hard. You know, she, her husband's the one who's making all the bank and now she's rich, but really she doesn't have any space to speak about this because she doesn't have degrees. And, and I'm sitting there reading this going, the irony and hypocrisy. Like, how sad. I don't know what her life is like, but if you don't think she's going to be dealing with trauma based off of thousands of venomous responses to her book that I'm sure was written with well-intentioned me, I, I just, it pains me that the church projects that type of image to the world. That we're either perfect or that we can't even get along with one another. So what do we do with all that? Do we just acknowledge it and say, all right, well, now you know you're screwed up, and this is screwed up, so God bless. Have fun. Remember that sign I talked about at the beginning, that play on words, our family rules, read this to counteract how you actually feel? I'd like to pivot at the end of this message to actually affirm that this family is awesome, that the family of God actually rules. But it's not awesome because of how I contribute to its dysfunction, nor how you do. It's, it's awesome, and it rules because of the one who allows us to experience this dysfunction, not deny it, but grow through it, be sanctified through it, and then show the world that we are authentically being transformed by a God of grace and compassion. So here, here's, the, here's the first thing. Our family rules because we have a father who is wholeheartedly devoted to our family's well-being. I've got this book. I really love this book. If you're looking for a tearjerker, it's not a Christian book. That doesn't matter. It's this book by Louis Anderson. You remember the comedian, Louis Anderson? Funny guy. This book is, I should have put a picture up on the screens. It's called Dear Dad, Letters from an Adult Child. And Louis Anderson's father, prior to him beginning this book, had passed away nine years prior, and his dad was a raging alcoholic. And so he, he gets this idea to start penning letters to his dad in an effort to get out some of his frustration. And then, ironically, he begins to discover the humanness of his broken dad and, and the hurt in his own life. And early on, he explains that he's wanting to pitch a show to a network, a cable network, for a show, a humorous show based on his family. It's going to be called The Johnsons Aren't Home. And as he's pitching it, the network producers are like, I don't, I don't, this isn't going to connect with anyone. Can we soften that up a bit? Like, that's a little bit too, too real. 
Uh, it doesn't sound real. And Louis like, it is real. I, I lived it. And I've tried to make it humorous so that people could disconnect momentarily through laughter and then realize actually it connects really deeply. And so he writes about it to his dad at the end of one of his early letters. And I, I just love what he says. He said, see, I've always had this idea to write a book about a guy who grows up and then has to go back in time and regrow up and rethink his life. He changes the bad parts and makes them good. He reinforces the good parts and makes them even better. He comes to grips with his family, and they come to resolve their problems with him. The story should give people a sense of hopefulness so that when they have finished reading, they feel better about themselves. Dad, I guess that's what I want from the Johnsons are at home. I don't exactly want to change everything, but I do want to feel better about myself. And I want to feel better about you, me, and you. I have this theory that all we deal with in life is loss. We lose the protective comfort of the womb. We lose our mother's breast. We lose the right to mess in our pants. That's funny. We lose friends, teachers, relatives. We lose our hair, our teeth, and our youth. We keep losing all these things and never get them back, but we never really learn how to deal with the loss. We never really say that it hurts. really hurts. And so we spend the rest of our lives trying to make up for it, holding on tightly to things that we should really let go of. Signed, feeling the loss. And I think about my life and thinking about God as a father. And unfortunately, I've projected upon him like Louis would to his dad because I, I think about the stuff that I've gone through and the disappointments in my life, and I've blamed God for tons of that stuff. But as I've gotten older, I've begun to realize that my frustration with God, the, the irony there and the beauty of that is he isn't the source of that, and yet he so walks me through the healing journey that I need to come to grips with the fact that Life is just traumatic. And, and God isn't going to replace all the difficult things I've gone through, but he will redeem them. And I get to be a part of that. You know, one of the things about God revealing himself and what we know as the doctrine of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has always struck me. And I don't know about you, but I've always gone like, where's the mom? Right? Like, that's, that, that's funny to me. Like, how is there a father and the son and, and the spirit? But where's, where's the mom? And, and I'm not giving you some theological interpretation. Please do not nail me to these words. But when I hear about the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit, and God self-revealing himself in familial terms, and they're not being a mom, the way that I wrestle with that, because God doesn't have, you know, when we talk about God the Father, we're not talking about a man, right, with a beard. <laughs> God, God doesn't have gender. You know, he's described as spirit. Spirit. Uh, he doesn't have chromosomes, right? But, but what's so amazing about God revealing himself as father over and over is our mind goes to the part that's missing. Like, there's so much that's missing. You'd expect the mom to make it good. And, and yeah, God at different times in scripture does reveal himself like a mother towards a child. But the predominant idea of self-disclosure is a father. And and it just strikes me that some way, somehow, in everything that's missing, there's wholeness. I just, that gets me. Here's the other thing that, that makes our family rule. We have a brother. 
who deeply understands our unique stories of suffering. You know, one of the ways the early church began to understand Jesus was through, again, this, this lens of family being adopted by God in this family. And it wasn't just Jesus as the son of the Godhead, not just God the son, but, but a brother to us. You know, Romans 8, where Paul writes that we're predestined to be conformed to the image of the son. Predestination there isn't about us as individuals. It's so that he, it continues, so that he might become the firstborn in the large family. Jesus is the subject of that sentence. I, I'm sorry if, if you've attempted to make predestination about your eternal salvation, but if we read Romans and, and really what Paul's saying there, it's, it's about Jesus and about a family that's growing. That's what it's about. And so in Hebrews, we see this picture of Jesus as an older brother. In verse 17 of chapter 2, it says, Therefore, and it's not up on the screens, he had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. We have traditional Jewish language here. We don't have the time to unpack all of it, but check out verse 18. It says, Because he himself was tested by what he suffered, he is able to help those who are being tested. Your story of suffering is not to be dismissed, and it's not to define you, but it does distinguish you from the other people here. Your unique story and stories of suffering and pain and heartache and disappointment, they ought not define you, but they do distinguish you from the others here so that when we come together and we share our heartache and remember that Jesus can empathize, we do not feel like we're dismissed. It does matter. The grace of God does transform and comes alive in us as a people when we look at all those around us and go, oh my goodness, you're messed up too? Or that hurt as well? My favorite time with the family of God is when I sit across someone from a cup of coffee in my office and they start talking about the stuff in their life that hurts. Because I'm not sitting across them unless they had walked that path of suffering. And I start thinking about my own life and how God has transformed me and how he continues to deliver me from my pain and my hurt. And I'm so glad I'm not the only one. So here's the third and final thing that makes this family rule. We have the spirit to unify us and teach us how to fight for this family's unity. I want to close with the idea of fighting for this family's unity because... It's too easy, and I, and I talked about earlier, to, to come to this place and sing a few songs or, or stand through them and hear a message and then leave. And then when something gets hard or uncomfortable in this place, it's like, all right, well, I'll just go to the next church. And we miss the opportunity to experience God's redemption and reconciliation in a way that actually ministers and helps heal what's so messed up with us. Because grace ought to surprise us. I mean, that's what makes the gospel so good, is it doesn't make sense. It's paradoxical. It's ironic. It's unexpected. It, it ought to blow us away over and over that God in his holiness would do the most seemingly unholy thing and go to be in the presence of sin so that we would not 
remain in this condition and that we would, in the course of our transforming, be a part of the transformation of this world around us, to go and make disciples literally as we are going to be discipled by Jesus affirms that he is the one that does the work, but we participate in that and we miss it. If every single time we run up against struggle or disappointment in this place, we decide that's it, I will break the fellowship and I will go off to a place where I can pretend that everything's okay. We miss it. So here is my one practical thing for you to do. I want to affirm what Pastor Britt talked about earlier this morning. If you are coming to Sunridge Community Church and you've checked us out for any amount of time, maybe it's your first week with us and you're like, okay, God, maybe there's something more here. Maybe you've been here for years. I don't know what the deal is with you, but get to be a part of this family in a way that is not going to just pretend or dismiss the real stuff is happening here. We don't want to be naive and we don't want to be ignorant. There's something profound for you to experience in this family if you are willing, willing to admit your brokenness and see that God is redeeming a whole bunch of brokenness around you. So how can you do that? Join something that's happening here. If you're not in a supper club and you're looking to find community with people don't worry, these won't be counseling sessions, okay? You're not going to share meals with folks and then spill your deepest, intense secrets. But maybe you will find people over the course of a meal around a table who you end up getting to share real parts about yourself. So separate clubs. Maybe it's Thursdays at Sunridge. That begins this upcoming Thursday. There are groups and studies and classes. So if you're married and you need to tune up, there's a lasting promise. If you're looking for a community and you want to go over not just basics of your faith, but you want to find and hear other stories, get to be a part of Rooted. If you want freedom from your finances because there's so much slavery that comes from being indebted there, do Financial Peace University. We have grief share. The second and fourth Thursdays, we have survivors of suicide loss. We have a study led by Amy Orth where we're doing a co-ed Bible study called The Road to Emmaus, where men and women are going to read scripture, join that. We have a class led by Ron and Lois Bolt, where they're talking about prayer being a way of life. If you don't think there's something here at Sunridge Community Church for you to experience the family of God in, you're, you're, I don't know what to say to you. In a few weeks, we're launching a ministry called The Post. If you're post-college, because we've got 18 to 24, and if you're 18 to 24, we're bowling tonight at uh, 6.30 at Temecula Lanes. Come, come and join that. But if you're post-college and you feel like the young adult life is just difficult once a month, folks are going to post up in a place where we're spending, and then they'll go out to lunch. I mean, there's just so much happening. Cruises. It's just we're having a ball here because we're not pretending it's perfect. So that is my exhortation to you. If you want this to be more than a message, then get in the messiness with us. Let's pray.